0: Harvard Divinity School. The Reimagination of Matter, introducing
1: the Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project, April 14th, 2023.
2: Good afternoon. My name is Melissa Wood Bartholomew. I have the privilege of serving as the Associate Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging here at Harvard Divinity School. And on behalf of our Dean, David Hempton, who you will hear from shortly, and Professors Joy and Raymond Carr, the conveners of the symposium our visiting scholars here at HGS, in collaboration with the Moses Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project at Harvard University, and everyone who helped to organize this important gathering, including the Office of Academic Affairs, I welcome you to the reimagination of matter, introducing the Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project, the inaugural symposium for the Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project. The purpose of the symposium is to give momentum to the efforts to explore, catalog, uh, catalog, and promulgate Dr. Charles H. Long's enduring intellectual contributions to the academic study of religion, history, and culture. There is a beautiful program planned for engagement with Long's work over the next two hours. It's outlined in the program that's on your chair, and you'll hear more about the speakers later. Joy and Raymond blessed me with the honor of welcoming you here and asked me to share a little bit about the work we've been doing here at Harvard Divinity School through our DIB office in collaboration with our partners throughout the community to advance our school's vision of a restorative, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive institution. And they have both been uh, engaged participants throughout the year. This assignment gave me the opportunity to reflect back on when I began my journey here in this role at HDS in July 2020. Charles Long had recently become an ancestor, and he's been with us on this journey. One of my first duties when I began in this role was to convene the Racial Justice and Healing Committee, a committee comprised of students, faculty, and staff. This was two months after the murder of George Floyd. Our committee began exploring ways to advance racial justice and healing at our school and help to transform culture. And this was an extension of the work I had been engaged in while I was a student here at Harvard Divinity School years ago. And I thought about the fact that everyone on our committee, students, faculty, and staff, they all, we all come to HDS at different times. And all of us, when we came, went through an orientation when we started we were introduced to the school's mission and values. And I thought it would be important for us to initiate a reorientation of sorts, designate a time at the start of the year when we reorientate ourselves around our shared values with a particular focus on dismantling and healing from racism and oppression. And during that early time, I was having regular conversations with David Carrasco. And when I mentioned reorientation, he said, Charles Long talks about reorientation. He talks about religion as orientation. So I began reading some of Long's work and read that he described religion as orientation, as a process for how we come to terms with the ultimate significance of our lives. So I shared this with the committee that it was important for us to remember that the purpose of our programming is to provide opportunities for members of our community to engage the head and the heart as we advance racial justice and healing in order to help us come to terms with the ultimate significance of our lives at HGS and beyond. And through God's grace, this is what we have been doing. For the last three years, we have been engaged in a reorientation and common conversation program, centering a common read text that helps us to grapple with the hard truths of this history, this country's history of racism and oppression, and engaging in a way through restorative justice that allows us to connect the head and heart and build relationships with each other as we discern our way forward, addressing the internal HCS systemic changes while remaining mindful of ways to connect our work to the broader world and holding onto a vision of a world healed of racism and oppression. For the past year, our community has been reading and reflecting on the legacy of slavery at Harvard. It is a report and recommendations issued by the presidential committee last year. This report details Harvard's integral role in advancing the pseudo-race science that justified slavery and animates racism and oppression It also details of uh, Harvard's financial ties to slavery and illuminates that Harvard would not have been able to function or flourish without the wealth generated from the enslavement of Africans and indigenous people. This report notes that more than 70 African and indigenous people were enslaved right here at Harvard University. We have been holding large and small group restorative circles for members of our community to discuss the report. And our aim is not just to read it, but to respond in action And we have been interrogating the role of religion in the legacy of slavery and oppression. But what is key, and this goes back to Long, what's key is that we have named the importance of this work starting from within, each of us. In order for us to achieve the type of external transformation, we have to grapple with the impact of this history on ourselves. So we have been doing what Long called us to do, to engage in the reorienting process that helps us to come to terms with the ultimate significance of our lives. So this symposium is situated at a time at HDS, an important time in the life of our community. This is the perfect time for us to pause and focus on the works of Dr. Charles Long and gain more wisdom from him to apply to our work going forward. He has been with us all along. And our students have answered this call and have been engaged in meaningful work that is helping us further this vision I'm excited now to introduce two of our students and have them come forward, Tracy Robinson Carter and Byron Jones. They are members of the Harambee Student Association and they will share a little bit about their work.
3: Good afternoon. we are on behalf of the Harambe students of African descent. Um, I, my name is Tracy Robertson Carter. I'm a student, a special student here at HGS, and along with our Harambe president, uh, Byron Jones, a gra- uh, who will be getting his MDiv in just a few weeks. We just wanna say thank you for having us <laughs> today. Yes. Um, Harambe is an organization that was started in 1978 here at the Divinity School. It's for students of African descent and the essence of the program is to build intentional community and celebrate black cultural and historic matters. Um, As an organization um, at a school committed to scholarship uh, scholarship and ministry and, and, and a religiously plural world, Harambe welcomes students regardless of their religious faith or denomination. A couple of the activities that we do regularly are gatherings, uh, we had our first uh, year, I don't know if Susanna Olmanuk is here, but our Women's scholar and resident we launched that this year and thrilled that that will be, um, thanks to Dean Hempton, um, this conference will be in perpetuity maybe I shouldn't say in perpetuity, but for a long time, um, <laughs> perpetuity, um, will be funded and this, um, and these activities that we uh, have launched will uh, continue to be here for future scholars. I wanted to also share that we have our annual conference that uh, Byron will share a little bit about uh, the Black Religion, Spirituality, and Cultural Conference.
4: Good afternoon. It is so good to see everyone. Thank you, Professor Cars, for giving us the opportunity, and Dean Bartholomew for including us in this program. Uh, as you are, as uh, Tracy has so eloquently stated, uh, we are Harambe. And one of the big initiatives of this year uh, was our BRCC uh, conference, where we uh, was a broad community of black people around Harvard, came to Harvard Divinity School to focus on sto- storytelling and reclaiming our narrative uh, for so often it- People have tried to tell our own story, the Black story, uh, but we were intentional um, in reclaiming our own story and using it as a vehicle for restorative justice and uh, and whole healing for the community. Um, and it, it just was not me. It was me, um, Tracy Carter, Kanesa Thompson in the back. Uh, uh, You can wave your hands so people can see you. Get your props, get your props. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get your props. Uh, Aliyah Collins, uh, who is not here, and uh, Ahmad uh, Edmund, who is not here. Um, But the conference was a two day span where Professor Kars came and supported. Many of our professors, who you see here, came to support us, and we really felt the support and continue to feel the support even post uh, the conference. So, again, thank you for including us and look forward to seeing you all again.
3: Thank you. I, I will leave just with um, for the students in the room that will be here in the coming years. Please, we are looking for our new leadership, um, any age, any any of uh, any you know faith and any background. Please join us um, for uh, our upcoming year for Harambe students of African descent. You can find us online at HDS at HDS uh, Harambe um, on Instagram. Thank you so much, and I look forward to the conference today. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy and Byron.
2: Now, I have the privilege of introducing our dean, David Hempton. David Hempton is the Alonzo L. McDonald Family Professor of Evangelical Theological Studies, John Lord O'Brien Professor of Divinity, and the dean of Harvard Divinity School. He has taught at Harvard since 2007, where he moved from his position at University Professor at Boston University. He was appointed dean of the faculty of HDS in 2012. Dean Hempton is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy, and former professor of modern history and director of the School of History in the Queen's University of Belfast. In October 2021, Hempton was featured was a featured speaker of the Gifford Lectures, one of the most prestigious honors in Scottish Academy. His series of lectures is entitled Networks, Nodes, and Nuclei in the History of Christianity uh, from 1500 to 2020. He has research and teaching interests in religion and political culture, religious identities and ethnic conflicts, the interdisciplinary study of lived religion, the history and theology of evangelical uh, Protestantism and Pentecostalism, the the global history of Christianity since 1500, and religious uh, disenchantment and secularization. And he has won the prestigious teaching awards at both uh, Boston University and Harvard. And I will just say Dean Hampton is uh, This is his last semester with us. He's retiring from this post. We would not be here doing what we're doing today. We would not be here engaged in the common read, uh, centering our work, rooting our work in the history of slavery and the history of uh, racial oppression in this country without the leadership of Dean David Hempton. So it's my pleasure to introduce you now to our wonderful Dean David Hempton. Thank you. (laughs)
5: Thanks, Melissa. My real claim to fame was doing the electric slide at the Black (laughs) Religion um, um, uh, Spirituality and Culture Conference. Um, I think there may be a a kind of tape of this uh, in the world somewhere. Uh, If you come across it, suppress it. (laughs) So I'm David Hempton. I'm the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. and It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the HDS campus to honor and celebrate the work of Charles Long and to introduce the Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project. As one of the foremost shapers of the study of religion, history, and culture in the United States and beyond, Long has had an immense influence over countless thousands of students of American religion, including most of the people in this room. My first duty is to thank my good friend and colleague, uh, David Carrasco, Um, uh, Director of the Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project at Harvard, for helping HDS understand the importance of Long's remarkable legacy. Um, I also want to pay tribute to um, the work of Ray and Joy Carr um, who have graced us with their presence uh, as visiting scholars at HDS this year and are now working assiduously on the Charles Long Codex. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm also grateful to my colleagues in the Office of Academic Affairs here at HDS who have ably supported this conference and helped it come to fruition. So thank you everyone who contributed your work or designing of brochures, of arranging travel schedules and all kinds of things. So thank you to all of those people. And thank you um, uh, everyone and welcome to all of our visitors today, especially those who will be offering keynote addresses. So Lee Butler, Keith David, Jennifer Reed, Dan Stewart, Corey Walker, and of course my own distinguished colleagues, Tracy Hux and Jacob Alupana. Thank you everyone for um, helping to make this a very special day at Harvard Divinity School. Charles Long was born in 1926, uh, exactly 26 years before I was born. I grew up in a different generation in a different place and with a distinct set of experiences of colonialism, oppression, social class, and political culture. Although he ranged wide and far, Long's primary discipline, if he would accept that term, was religious studies. Mine was history. To be honest with you, and to my shame, I had never heard of Charles Long until I arrived in the United States just over 20 years ago. I now wish I had read his work much earlier it would have helped me make sense of a whole lot of things. That said, as I've started to read my way through his work, beginning with his collected essays, I've been struck by an eerie similarity in the ways we have gone about our respective intellectual journeys, though his, of course, more influential. Like Long, getting to university and getting started in academic life was an unlikely adventure not usually open to people of our social class and family lineage. Like Long, I became interested quite early in religion, not of the establishmentarian institutional kind that dominated the landscape when we began our work. Starting out from Belfast during the Troubles, I experienced a different kind of colonial and post-colonial violence, but many of the tropes were the same. Inspired by a distinguished coterie of Marxist scholars and primitive Methodist ranters, like Long, I too became interested in the religion of the people and devoted a collection of essays to that very subject with that title, the religion of the people. Strangely, I find myself dealing with some of the very same topics, albeit less creatively, that show up in Long's own work. Enlightenment rationalism and its racial reasonings. Popular religion and how to understand it from below, not from the perspective of elite condescension. Political and legal systems of oppression and how they were weaponized as instruments of religious and political control, including race control. External and internal colonialisms and their baleful consequences, which sadly are still with us. And above all, a relentless urge in his part to think about religion and the multitudinous ways of studying it, theorizing about it, and trying to understand it in fresh and creative ways. I gladly repeat um, my friend David Carrasco's own eulogy of Long, um, that Long had a genius at showing us not only how to think about religion, but but where such thinking could carry you. How deeply it could reveal the interiority of one's own mindsets, when he lectured, his words and thoughts seemed to take on musical forms, sometimes the blues, other times jazz, and often classical. He set a rigorous hermeneutical standard for all the students, and especially the students of color, who found in his voice writings and wisdom the meanings of what he called the secret of creation. He put history of religions into a critical dialogue with theology, the study of black religion in America, and post-colonial studies and showed us, however, that the powers of religion could not be reduced to political realities. Thank you, David. I wish I had read Long's brilliant and influential corpus much earlier in my own intellectual journey. Reading him now makes me a little sad that so much of the study of religion still operates within national or denominational traditions such that a working-class Irishman like me never got to read the creative and distinguished work of an African-American of humble origins from the American South. But it's never too late to learn, and it's in that spirit that I look forward with you to this opportunity to consider the path-breaking work of an intellectual giant and to figure out how we can ensure that his legacy is never forgotten and may yet still be an influencer of generations of students of religion in the years to come. So, welcome everyone and let the fun begin. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm.
6: oh, yeah. Hi, Ellis Hall here. And I am so honored to be celebrating the legacy of the amazing Dr. Charles Houston Long. And uh, all I can say is chakalaka. I remember in November of 2019 at Dr. Joy and Ray Carr's house, we had such a, how can I call it? A celebration of peace and and love and food lots of food and us talking about the camaraderie of music and how it just enters your soul and enters your spirit it was just so amazing to feel his spirit and keeping with that in mind something like I said chilling killing wasting some time
7: God bless you, Dr.
1: Charles.
8: Good afternoon. <laughs> you just heard <clears throat> Ray Charles' protege. He trained with Ray Charles, and he was um, under Ray Charles' label. And um, that song we selected because that was one of Charles Long's favorite songs, along with California Dreaming" and the Black National Anthem. <laughs> so. Yes.
9: So I want to say we are thrilled to welcome you to this inaugural symposium, introducing the Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project. And I also want to thank you for inviting us into your community and giving us the freedom to develop this symposium in your midst and to involve you and your resources. What a gift this has been to us, what a gift you have been to us. And this vision began in 2020, shortly after the death of Dr. Long. And I I want to be frank about something. This is, it is not Malibu. But even the weather agreed with us. So we've had a good time, spending time with you. Not wasting time, but spending time.
8: Um, this has been an invigorating and insightful experience to see behind the wall of what um, existed in our minds about the mythic you know, dimensions of Harvard. We now know and appreciate the real people who continually make magic happen here. Uh, this second sight into Harvard has been refreshing and leaves our imaginations filled with possibilities. So thank you so much.
9: We also want to thank Dr. Carrasco and Dean David Hempton, who had the foresight to support this project. This is his last year as dean of HDS, and we hope our efforts honor his service. This symposium is a gesture that witnesses to the insight and the leadership of Hampton, who has worked effectively to enlarge the presence of African-American studies at HDS. We are also part of the community at the Center for the Study of World Religions, that's led by Charles Stang. We call him Charlie. So I want to say that we are deeply appreciative of that community, and we're enjoying our space there.
8: And especially. it's been really nice when it's cold, Now all I yeah. had to do was walk across the street. Right. That,
9: what I called online, that cozy proximity to HDS. <laughs> that really worked out. Now, I want to just say a couple of things about the reimagination of matter, and I'll keep this brief. In relation to the title, it's not simply the imagination of matter, which is a, ta- a term that Charles Long coined to discuss Mitchell Eliade's work, but it's the reimagination of matter. And what we mean by that, we believe that every new generation has to imagine again or th- rethink and come to terms with their relationship to the material world. When we thought of this title, it came to mean more than just thinking again. So it was more than even what we thought about before, it came to mean thinking together. We don't just imagine, but we reimagine, and we engage in in that type of uh, activity in community.
8: Some reimagining, uh, some collective effervescence,
9: collective effervescence. effervescence. Durkheim, yeah, Durkheim, Carrasco type terms, <laughs> and so we 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 really have enjoyed that type of effervescence.
8: We have, we have,
9: and we must come to terms not only simply with humankind, but with other kind, meaning the plants, the animals, the mountains, and the streams, the hills, and the oceans. Dr. Long was known for thinking through the meaning of the ocean as a mnemonic structure for thinking about who we are as human beings. And I remember, and this is not part of the script, but I have to say it. I remember I was parked beside the Pacific one day because I know that Dr. Long had written something on the Mediterranean. I remember he had talked about the Atlantic. I said, Dr. Long, what about the Pacific? And he said, I can't say the word. I won't say the word. He said, oh boy. I changed the word. And he said, the Pacific, it's a booger bear. It's twice as big as the Atlantic. It's deeper. He said, you mess around, an island might pop up. He said, they mastered the Mediterranean. They mastered the Atlantic. But the Pacific...
8: It'll whip their ass. So I, I had to let it out. I love when he does that. I keep asking, do it again. So we also, we want
9: to think through these things. We want to think through these things with the former generation, which includes Dr. Long. We want to think through these things with these leading scholars you will hear from today. Yes. And we want to think through these things with the young people who are going to be the, the future voice of what we do
8: absolutely and part of what we're doing is multimodal because dr. Long was multimodal so we have to include some music that's right. and and we want you to dance with us in in his inside of his ideas today
9: that's right you hear the beautiful voice of Keith David we'll talk about him later when we I introduce know. him and so all of that is a part of the multimodal nature of what we're doing today.
8: And we, di- we deliberated over who would be appropriate per- who would be the appropriate person to give the keynote address for this inaugural symposium and we wanted a thinker, a thinker, a person whose intellectual contributions they are making inter- intellectual contributions to Dr. Long's intellectual legacy.
9: And we wanted someone that Dr. Long appreciated. We wanted someone who understands and truly engages Long's religious thinking. We believe you will find this ethos in several of Dr. Corey Walker's articles, reviews, and books. Because I like short interventions, one of my favorite short online discussions from Dr. Walker is called Bringer of Problems, Charles H. Long in the basic question of humanity. Now, it is my pleasure. To introduce you to what I call online this dynamic inter- interim dean from Wake Forest, North Carolina.
8: Hold on, before you call his name, yeah. I wanted to let you know that the image of myself and Dr. Long seated is the last uh, public uh, public speaking event that he did. He did at Pepperdine in Malibu before four hundred students. I want to share that. Okay, okay.
9: So another thing about Dr. Walker. Dr. Walker is not just someone who simply repristinates Long's work. On the contrary, he takes his intellectual contributions seriously and yet develops them in his own independent direction. Dr. Walker has chosen as his title for his lecture the topic, I Make Trouble, Charles H. Long and Provocations for Thinking.
8: Please welcome
9: Dr. Corey Walker.
10: Thank you, Ray and Joy, and thank you for inviting me. So good to be back at my alma mater. Um, I came here to Harvard after finishing up at Virginia Union, the School of Theology, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union. Um, So it's always great uh, to be back here. I haven't been back here since um, BC, before COVID, so. (laughs) And it's so wonderful to uh, be here with so many friends uh, and so many folks that we know and professors. Uh, Preston Williams was my ethics professor. Um, And it's wonderful to see one of my former students at Virginia Union, uh, one of the undergraduate students, Byron here, finishing up this year, so congratulations. So today I want to Offer some thoughts on I Make Trouble, <clears throat> Charles H. Long, and Provocations for Thinking. And I want to open up with uh, a statement by Charles Long that orients my thoughts and orients what follows. Long, uh, Long writes If actual religious expressions cannot be reduced to the conceptual framework of Enlightenment and rationalism, then what form of order is appropriate? The title of this lecture is drawn from Charles Long's lecture delivered on October 22nd, 1980 at the Hotel Tudor in New York City at the annual meeting of the Society for the Study of Black Religion. At this meeting, the 10th anniversary of the Society, Long was introduced by none other than James Cone. The introduction and the talk that followed contained much signifying, a scholarly dozens with a healthy bit of testosterone. (laughs) But it was undergirded by a deep respect and studied interrogation of each other's work and critical engagement with the study of black religion. It was obvious that Jim and Chuck, as they referred to one another throughout the evening, were engaged in what would be a lifelong conversation that began when Jim was a graduate student and Chuck was on the faculty at the University of Chicago. and this posthumously published memoir said I wasn't going to tell nobody, Cone would state as much, writing, Cone, the historical research was new territory for me, and I knew Charles Long was right. Cone's candid confession is illuminating. He affirms the substance of Long's thinking and articulating the depth and complexity of of the black religious imagination. To be sure, Cone was not always a willing traveler, but the shadow of that thought or rather of Long's thinking could not be satiated with a mere rehearsal of the same. Religion, thought, history, culture, and experience requires a new thinking that opens the terrain of the experiences and expressions of continental and diasporic Africans. It is such a thinking, what Long calls a serious human discourse that moves beyond an unreflexive categorical form of thought. What Long terms a serious human discourse is a deliberative and dialogic thinking that suspends teleology, particularly in a disciplinary mode. This is what the philosopher Lewis Gordon calls a teleological suspension of disciplinarity. This move is necessary in order to keep thinking open, particularly in in the face of the hegemony of the disciplines of the dominant North Atlantic Academy. To be open to the depth and density of experience and the hermeneutical process of creating understanding, a new thinking is required under conditions that are attentive to the multiplicity of being human in the world. Long sharpens his critical project in his 1973 plenary lecture at the American Academy of Religion, Cargo Cults as Historical Religious Phenomena, where he begins, raising new epistemological issues from the probing of the notions and categories of objectivity. Yet, in one of his earliest published articles, Religion and Mythology, a critical review of some recent discussions, Long captures an essential aspect of a thinking that would form a critical component of his intellectual project, writing, While gaps still exist in our historical knowledge, the major problem today is not lack of information. It is rather the problem of finding a hermeneutic which proves to be adequate adequate to the interpretive schema for the historical content which already confronts us. In 1963, Long expresses a central preoccupation of his intellectual corpus, that continues to confront us to this moment that is the categorical function of particular forms of knowledge that is that are unable to understand the buoyant language of myth and religion for long This situation is exacerbated by the broad human conversation across the disciplinary domains. What he terms as depth psychology, existential philosophy, literary and art criticism, and historical studies, historical study itself. And so doing, Long calls for a deliberate and dialogical thinking that is open in response to a new hermeneutical situation and he offers us several provocations for thinking today. The first provocation is the provocation on knowledge. In his contribution to With This Root About My Person, David Carrasco concludes with this prescient reminder. It is time to return to Long's first book, Alpha, to grasp where he began, where he is coming from, and where we must go in order to go forward, with Alpha, Long urges us to think the difference between the categorizing knowledge about religions and knowledge of the people's own meanings of religions beyond the conceptualization that controls by knowledges about them. This is an extended, then he extends this thinking to the problematics of space what Long terms city traditions. Echoing several points in Iliade's celestial archetypes of territories, temples, and cities from the myth of eternal return, Long thinks the shift from nomadic to agricultural societies and the profound effects on knowledge production and reproduction. He also thinks the shift from African societies to the Atlantic world the largest forced human migration in human history what that effect ha- what that might what that shift has and continues to have on the effects of what long terms the long modernity indeed this has been long's point for a long for a long time and it has been his point of departure in responding to crisis situations first announced in alpha where he engages the deficiency of philosophy and theology, writing, in philosophy and theology, the use of analogy may be an attempt to deal discursively with the more profound symbolic forms of human expression. With Alpha, Long not only recognizes the deficiencies of the disciplines, he recognizes the problem of a singular mythic knowledge of the human. Not only do specific forms of human beings receive their sanction from the myth, Long writes, but the general physiological and psychological makeup of each individual is based on a divine model contained in the cosmogonic myth. The cosmogonic myth is myth par excellence, precisely because the beginnings of all things within the culture are modeled on the pattern of this myth. Long was engaged in a lifelong meditation on the meaning and understanding of the human. And recalling an encounter with his Dr. Vata, Joachim Vock, Long recollects, I told him that this language was strange for me, since where I came from, people did not have ideas or notions of revelations. For, for, For me, people had revelations. Bach's immediate response and enthusiastic response was, ah, so, religious experience. In this statement, ah, so, religious experience, he placed my community of origin within the universal structures of the human at a conceptual level, as well as opened up the historical comparative meaning of my community within the entire history of humankind. As I understood him, my community and its religiousness was no longer simply a pawn of the vicissitudes of this country and its constitutional machinations. Thus, the question for Long and for us is, what is the meaning of the human now that the West must realize that those who were formerly considered lesser or second class humans have, in fact, always been fully human Mm
11: -hmm.
10: provocation on imagination certainly the notion of imagination as a critical resource for thinking has been a recurrent yet contested theme in the history of thought such an invitation whether viewed within the hesitation of such of such whether viewed with hesitation such as the seemingly irresolvable, albeit highly productive contentiousness between understanding and imagination, as in Immanuel Kant, or critically embraced as a preserve of possibility for the fate of thinking, as in the thought of Herbert Marcuse's view of imagination as breaking the spell of the establishment, or Nathan Scott's call for a theology of imagination that renews and reinvigorates at a conceptual level of of sensibility and lifestyle, the imaginative style of people. The invitation to imagination brings to the foreground the possibilities and impossibilities of imagination in extending and establishing new frameworks of knowledge. Moreover, the imagination is highly suggestive and susceptible to the desire to push thought in new and uncritical realms, particularly those realms that then negate those sentient experiences of mind and body and space and time. Charles Long offers us an exemplary manner with which we can exploit the opportunity to return to imagination in a critical and comprehensive manner in his episodic essay. Mircea Iliade and the Imagination of Matter, and casting Iliade's wonderfully, wonderfully enigmatic text of 1958, Patterns of Comparative Religion, as a critical attempt to address the issue of religion as a specific mode of being, Long pursues a thick reading of modernity, inclusive of its theopolitical coloniality, and crafting hermeneutical procedures that seek an interpretation of the historical range of human expressions in their specificity and integrity, whether in art, linguistics, geography, etc. What Long does is open up a line of thinking that thinks a form of the world which is present as a concrete form of matter, that is, the logical and symbolic relationship between the things in themselves and the abstractions of consciousness proceeding from the vague intuitions and traces of the things in themselves, those things we can never know. Thus, if we consider this text as a rehearsal of those histories that seek to dehumanize and, and marginalize the majority of the world's people, we can see and understand long as engaging in what the philosophical novelist Wilson Harris uh, terms the eternal return. Sure. Moving to those spaces those un- and developing an untimely thinking of a rehearsal as a capacity which frees us from those fixed conceptions of our time thereby revealing an other corpus of sensibility. Provocation on religion. While the relationship between Long and Cone, between black theology and black religion, haunts past and I would add current scholarship, Long's engagement was a provocation to thinking in new, in new and dynamic ways. Charles Long seeks to force a thinking of religion that is, thinking, that is thinking religion and its condition of possibility. He speaks of religion doubly, writing, when I say religion, I am first of all speaking of the new discipline of the history of religions, which itself emerges from the shifts in modern scholarly understanding. In another sense, I shall be speaking of a broader context, where the issue issue is of a new humanism and an ultimate definition of the human is at stake. A most exemplary instance of Long engaging this line of thought is his continual return to the work of Howard Thurman. But let me offer another space of engagement. I wish to situate Long's thinking within a broader terrain of critical thought inaugurated by scholars associated with the Institute of the Black World. It is Julian Julian Dotson's contribution to the Festschrift for long where we associate him with a kind of generative thinking within a broader community of thinkers other than the Chicago School or its disciplinary dictate history of religions thinking long within the Brown Michigan State University of Texas Austin axis of studying the African presence in the Americas. Professor Dotson displaces the preoccupation with so much scholarship along with the history of religions and places him within the broader critical terrain of the discipline of black studies. It it referred, uh, according to Professor Dotson, She was first introduced to Long while at the Institute of of the Black World, where, quoting her, Charles had been referred to me by Vincent Harding, Pat Daly, Bill Strickland, Jan Douglas, Chet Davis, Steve Henderson, and others, suggesting that Long was thinking and writing about religion in ways that would benefit my research on women, power, and the African Methodist Episcopal Church. In his understated oh, wow. classic, Understanding the New Black Poetry, Steven Henderson underscores the style of thinking undertaken at the Institute of the Black World with particular attention to the Attica Uprising of 1971. In September of 1971, the IBW monthly report uh, has an article where we find these words. The men of Attica were different from their captors. One brother said, I am Attica. He meant that he was the new reality, the embodiment of change that Attica and all American institutions must undergo. In order to sustain the revolt at Attica, some new moral and political force had to be created, some new set of values. What was it? What was new about the black prisoners which made their revolt unlike any other that had happened before? Long was not merely thinking against a reductionist idea of critique. Rather, he was thinking across space and time, the people's ideas, cultures, and expressions. That, in his earlier terms, had revelations. In this regard, we may revisit the first Black Studies Director's Seminar convened at the Institute of the Black World in 1969, where Lerone Bennett issued a critical epistemological and ethical challenge to those assembled regarding the intellectual and political problem space of blackness in the academy and in the broader society. Under the title, The Challenge of Blackness, Bennett challenged the directors to view the issue of blackness as not just a mere descriptive of a condition elaborated within the geopolitical and historical confines of a distinctive Western and uniquely American imaginary. Rather, he formulates a challenge for blackness as the elaboration of the condition of possibility for an other knowledge, for an other order of being recognizing the limitations of the dominant episteme, Bennett states, we are about the challenge and because of the fact, we are about the challenge of the task of defining, defending, and illustrating blackness. We believe blackness is a total challenge because of the fact that at a certain level, basic conflicts of interest express themselves as conflicts of rationalities. Mm we see the rationality of blackness as a total challenge to the world. The critical achievement of Bennett's statement is the acuity and integrity of defining an intellectual task as an open thinking of the registers in which we must follow in order to open up a new understanding of the human and a new understanding of the world. Long will echo these thoughts and sentiments When writing in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the uprisings of the generation of 68 in a contribution to the criterion at the University of Chicago, he contributes an article, The Black Reality. In that article, he writes, the visibility of the black community in America is our challenge and opportunity to develop a theology of freedom a freedom for humanity, a new humanity. Long calls our attention to the conditions of possibility for something new, beyond the frames of an intelligence, a thought that encloses the imagination and our institutions. To be sure, Long is not calling for a theology coterminous with the imperial dictates of theology proper. Rather, the object preoccupying his thinking is that of a freedom that unfolds a new humanity beyond the science of of the human. A discourse and methodology, Long writes, must be found that is capable of putting things in their right places and assigning the correct values to them. This statement is echoed by Sylvia Winter's 1984 Boundary Two article The ceremony must be found after humanism. In many ways, we're still trying to find that ceremony. Perhaps, just perhaps, our return to Long, our return to a codex Charles Long, will help us in this task. Thank you. (laughs)
8: Thank you. That's a lot of food for thought, right? We didn't build in time for Q&A. It's chock full, the reception. You can chop it up, have questions, explore.
9: And that's exactly where we built the Q&A and actually within the reception. And um, Dr. Long, if you knew anything about Dr. Long, you knew it, it was almost like the after party was the place to be. Where you have rich conversations and um, covered. On, uh, I, I remember sometimes walking in a room and I would hear this big booming voice, and it would be Dr. Long, holding court. And so I hope that tonight that you all will have conversations with each other.
8: Um, before we get started on the um, short video presentation, it's not that short, uh, but we'd like to acknowledge a few people in the audience. Um, I'd first like to acknowledge some dear friends who came all the way from California. Dr. Marks Brown and Dr. Nicole Brown. Thank you so much for coming. And I know there are several others who've flown in. Eric Williams from the Smithsonian. Where are you? Um, Aaron Grizzell from the MLK Foundation in Northern California. And Robin Cone. James Cone's daughter is here, from New York. <laughs> and before the presentation, we have some um, remarks from um, a special guest who I'm willing, probably knew Dr. Long longer than any of us in the room.
9: He shared a common vision with Dr. Long in the founding of the SSBR Society for the Study of Black Religion, um, which is the oldest African American scholarly society and recently during a spring during spring break, I found a personal letter between Dr. Preston Williams and Dr. Long from the 70s. And I thought to myself, I can't wait to be a fly on the wall so I can read more of this type of correspondence between these giants. I will also invite you um, after this event to visit the Williams Chapel on the other side of this building a renaming which is a part of a wonderful renovation of the Swartz Hall. But we're gonna have Dr. Preston Williams say a couple of words here at this moment.
8: Thank
12: you. I wanna thank Jody uh, and uh, Raymond for giving me this uh, opportunity. When I was appointed Houghton Professor of Contemporary Change at HDS, the Center for the Study of World Religion did not recognize African religions as religions. One of my early actions was to call Chuck Long to seek a recommendation of a person to teach African religions. He recommended one of his students, Sheila Walker. Her master's thesis on Haitian religion had been published, and her doctoral thesis on the Harris Church in Africa was in progress. Dean Hempton's 2022 annual report lists Sheila Walker as the first woman in religious research research associate. Sheila Walker, Chuck's student, was HDS's initial appointment in African religion. (laughs) Sheila served as my associate for two years. This is a footnote you should attach to today's symposium.
8: Thank you (laughs) you so much, Dr. Preston. We also want to acknowledge Dr. Waleen Dodson, who's here today also, who um, is doing annual work around Long's work, and we are so um, pleased that you've come, and you and Alice have come today, so I want to acknowledge you, too. Thank you. So um, the video presentation, Robbie, can you help me? Thank you, I appreciate it. The video presentation, um, there's a lot of footage on the cutting room floor, as they say, even though it's a digital. Um, It's gonna be a longer presentation, probably upwards of 90 minutes. Um, I tried to cut it down as much as I possibly could. And I hope you enjoy it. You're gonna get insights regarding Long's work and a little bit of a privy into his private life as well. So um, visualizing and David Crasco gave me this idea of visualizing, because Codex is alive, right? It's organic. Visualizing the Codex Charles H. Long's Long Papers Project.
9: And you will hear a distinctive voice as a part of this documentary.
8: You'll find out who he is later.
13: <laughs> what is Africa to me? Copper sun or scarlet sea? Jungle star or jungle track, strong bronzed men or regal black, women from whose loins I sprang when the birds of Eden sang, one three centuries removed from the scenes his fathers loved, born August 23, 1926, in Little Rock, Arkansas, to Samuel Preston, and Diamond Geneva Thompson Long. Dr. Charles Houston Long grew up in Little Rock and attended the public schools. Spicy Grove, Cinnamon Tree. What is Africa to me? Heritage, County Cullen.
7: My family was a proud family in the midst of a proud group of families.
13: Charles Houston Long, hermeneut, bricoler, bringer of problems.
7: And uh, that made for a happy childhood. And a growing up, that gave me uh, uh, confidence and security and a lot of other very good things. Uh, so even though it was a Depression, and even though it was the South, and even though it was... Uh, segregated, and so forth, black folks figured out how to live a good life. Uh, And that did not excuse any of the oppression. It simply meant that we were not going to allow the oppression to stifle our meaning of what it means to be a human being, to respect each other, and to have a regard for other human beings.
13: Chuck, as his friends called him, graduated from Dunbar Junior College. He then enlisted in the United States Army Air Forces, USAF, where he served one tour during World War II, 1944 through 1946, as an operations specialist, being decorated with the American Theater Campaign Ribbon, Good Conduct Medal, and the Victory Ribbon. After his military service, Long enrolled in the Divinity School at the University of Chicago and graduated with a Bachelor of Divinity in 1953 and earned his Ph.D. in 1962. The Reimagination of Matter, introducing the Codex Charles H. Long Papers
14: Project. My name is Carolyn Long Langston, and this is my mother. My name is Alice
1: Marie Freeman-Long.
14: And I'm the daughter of Charles H. Long, and this is um, Charles H. Long's wife. I mean, we're so happy that all his work can continue to, to help others, and we know we w- would want that to continue. Mom, do you want to say
8: anything? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs>
14: This is my daughter, and she speaks on my behalf. You're 95 years old. Just had a birthday.
13: He married his loving and faithful wife, Alice Freeman, in 1952. Together, they had four children John, Carolyn, Christopher, and David.
15: Hi, uh, my name is David Long. I am the fourth child of Charles and Alice Long. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my life uh, with, my, with my dad. By training, I'm a, an attorney. But my father, he was not an ordinary person. Let me put it that way. Uh, I knew that from, from my first memory of him his discipline. I never understood the field. I would hear him speak, especially as a, when I became an adult. But it was a, a different language. It was certainly a different language from the law, um, a different style of speaking, a different style of writing. Um, and I knew that he was an important uh, scholar in that field. Uh, and by the time he was near his death, um, matter of fact, when he was you know, in the hospital, um, he expressed a lot of worry about not his legacy, but the legacy of, of his mentors, people like uh, Professor Eliotti. And um, that's when I realized Even when he was in the hospital, what he would talk about is his scholarship and uh, the scholarship of of those people he, uh, he cared about. And that's when I knew he was a scholar to the bone. He was a scholar at heart and how much that meant to him and how important it was to him. My mom one day said, after my dad had just passed, she said he was no ordinary person, and, and that is for sure. I've never known anyone like my dad, and I doubt I'll, I, that I'll ever will. Uh, I miss him, uh, I love him, and uh, uh, I think about him every day. I am so thankful uh, that Dr. Uh, Raymond Carr and Dr. Joy Carr have taken this on um, uh, to organize and make sure that my dad's scholarship is uh, open to other scholars, particularly those scholars that are interested in um, building on my my father's work and um, and I'm also very uh, thankful to Dr. David Carrasco for his work uh, in this area as well um, at Harvard University. And I could not be happier
16: uh, with the progress thus far. Hi, I'm Phil Arnold, historian of religion at Syracuse University, and also the founding director of the SCANO Great Law Peace Center.
14: And I'm Sandy Bigtree. I'm a citizen of the Mohawk Nation at Akwesasne.
16: Charles Long has been absolutely formative in both of our lives. And he really is the person that most epitomized the the importance of indigenous traditions uh, for the history of religions. Scano Great Law Peace Center, literally that would not have happened without um, Charles Long's influence.
14: I was an urban Indian, what you would call an urban Indian. I didn't know how to express anything or how to uh, bridge this communicational um, void between my ancestors and their traditions and then who I had become growing up in the city. So and that's when I met Charles Long and it was a whole world was revealed to me.
16: Professor Long was able to perceive what decolonization really meant as he said, we had to crawl back through colonialism to arrive at our ultimate freedom.
1: So having had the privilege to actually be in Charles Long's presence, is a gift that has value that is yet unfolding. I was introduced to Dr. Long by Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon and so I had the honor of just sitting in that class but more importantly sitting at dinner with him as he smoked and drank and talked and my only regret is that I didn't have a voice activated recorder to capture and preserve everything that he shared. But one of the things that I most appreciate about Dr. Long's work is the way in which he articulates a working definition of religion that any any individual, irrespective of their level of formal education can grasp and understand its significance. And so this notion that religion is ultimately one's reality really invites the question of what it means to really think about what it means to be human and the responsibility that comes with being human and recognizing someone else's humanity. Charles Long, uh,
13: for me, is sort of the intellectual heavyweight in all of my work. Uh, It inspired me to look at um, Dr. King's work anew and to look at the area of ethics, the area of how we uh, come to relate to each other at a concrete and a practical level Uh, in thinking about um, new ways of extending the beloved community throughout uh, uh, throughout our nation and throughout the world. So
14: I probably would not have reached any of the intellectual capacities that I have uh, achieved, had it not been for Charles Long. I didn't study with him. I didn't go to school with him. But by the same token, his writing, his talking, his lecturing, his conversations just sparked an entire world of my abilities that I would not have had were he not around.
17: I've noticed since Dr. Long passed that he's often referred to as um, and and only as a scholar of African-American religion or a scholar of American religion. And Though both those things are undoubtedly, absolutely true. There was a lot more going on there, and to find that place where it was going on, it's really necessary to go back to uh, the University of Chicago in the late 1950s and into the 1960s.
13: He joined the faculty of the Department of Religion at the University of Chicago and served as a member of the tenured faculty until 1974.
17: That was the place where Dr. Long was connected with a group of really incredible people. There was um, Joachim Vock, his teacher, of course, Mircea Iliade, Joe Kitagawa, uh, Jonathan Smith, Case Bola. They were the running and alienated of modernity is what he said. We can say, well, he's a scholar of religion, American religion, African-American religion. But first and foremost, I would say that he was... um, he was a hermeneut.
13: He then joined the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as the William Rand Keenan Jr. Professor of the History of Religions and the faculty of Duke University in a joint appointment.
18: Well, my name is Sherman Jackson. I'm, a, I'm the King Faisal Chair of Islamic Thought and Culture at the University of Southern California. I was in awe of Professor Long uh, of from the beginning. The ability to cut through all, all, all the jargon, in all of the sort of superfluous uh, theorization and just get to the real point of the issue. Um, And to do so uh, in a voice that was his own. One of my questions was, how do we explain the rise of Islam among black Americans, which to all intents and purposes is largely a 20th century phenomenon. And Professor Long's notion of opacity and opugnancy, uh seem to map very well onto what we find uh, in the early uh, history of Islam among black Americans uh, that the, the black self uh, has built into it mechanisms uh, that make it more opaque in resisting uh, the attempts of uh, at indwelling uh, by the narratives of,
13: of the dominant culture. Dr. Long also served on the faculty of Syracuse University as the Jeanette K. Watson Professor of History of Religions and Professor of History of Religion and Director of the Research Center for Black Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He has taught as a visiting professor at the University of Queensland in Australia, the University of Tsukuba in Japan, and the University of Cape Town in South Africa. At the time of his death, He was Emeritus Professor of Religion at UC Santa Barbara.
19: One of Dr. Long's profound gifts to me and my work was that he opened space for the extra church to explore those spaces outside of the traditional black church. And also he began to to chart a new crossroads with the involuntary presence of enslaved Africans proliferating this hemisphere And also the image of Africa as a religious image, and it was at that crossroads that my scholarly offerings began to.
20: Dr Charles H long, who has played a major role in my own intellectual academic journey. As well as my sense of being an African American academic within the US and indeed globally so it's humbling and joyful at the same time. I first met Dr. Long in New York at Union Theological Seminary in 1987. We uh, got together at Dr. Cohn's apartment at Union. And it's one of the initial highlights of my young career to have both Dr. Cone and Dr. Long debating and arguing over theology and religion over drinks and dinner. And I was just a young lad Still working on my PhD, but it made a big impression. I think about Dr. Long in terms of his impact. One is his understanding of religion as ultimate orientation to reality and being. And what Dr. Long does is he opens up the possibilities for theology to see itself in a self-critical and self-reflective way by way of appreciating the critique of religion. We also have to talk about the revolutionary role of Charles Long. People may not appreciate this, but he was the president of the American Academy of Religion. That's a revolutionary act in the 60s and 70s for an African-American to have that position.
13: He was affectionately called the teacher.
20: One word that I use to
21: identify and celebrate the work and life of Charles Long is Uh, innovator. Uh, Charles Long is one of the great innovators in the study of religion uh, in the last part of the 20th, and the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, Now, to be an innovator, you have to also know the tradition. And and Charles Long uh, developed uh, uh, an understanding of his intellectual,
20: his racial, his human tradition. Dr. Long nurtured generations of scholars. Some were his own students, but I think the broader impact is with the people who weren't technically his graduate students or undergraduate students. He just, ah, he was just a charismatic figure that could speak on any topic.
13: The American Society of the Study of Religion, ASSR, the Society for the Study of Black Religion, SSBR, and he served on the Executive Committee of the American Academy of Religion, AAR, during its founding years, being elected president in 1973. He was a co-founder of the international journal History of Religions, the founding co-editor in chief of Religions of Americas series, and he was a key member of several professional organizations.
21: I met Dr. Long in 1969 and my life was changed forever and I will use his methodology as I have used it in my preaching and my teaching until God calls me home. A stroke five years ago has affected my speech and challenged the left side of my body but thank god it, it left me in my right mind and in my right mind i say to you thank god for chuck long who shaped my thinking my teaching my preaching and my pastor
15: um i had the opportunity and privilege to take a course with dr long at Drew University um, titled God Talk and Black Thinkers. Um, it was one of the most uh, sort of bell-binding experiences I had in graduate school, Dr. Long and Dr. Jeremiah Wright. So it was an amazing experience to see them as mentor and mentee. Um, and I suppose if I have a favorite turn of phrase or a favorite idea, or I think it would be something called the American epicene. So Long helps us understand not just so much what we're talking about, but why we're talking about it. How does this episteme, this way of knowing, generate knowledge of
1: bodies? Thank you for a moment to just reflect with you about the significance of Charles Long, his teaching, his research, and his, his intellectual genius. Thank
6: you. (laughs) You
7: (laughs) only place where one can find the possibility of creativity is to go back and undertake and undergo a critique of your past because that is where the creation will come from.
13: The greatest fact of my life was that I was born into that family and they named me. I was along. The fact that I was along and the long family and that black community in Little Rock that's the reason I did everything I ever did I was not trying to get something I was looking for space to express myself I had a form of freedom in the midst of all kinds of external constraints and they couldn't touch the gift of my birth Charles Long August 28, 2018 Long was indeed a pivotal figure and his intellectual contributions are generative. He described his academic career as an intellectual orientation focused on hermeneutics as a general theory of cultural formation and interpretation and the application of these methodical meanings to the theoretical studies of religion. About Long's significations, David Carrasco, historian of religions, scholar and anthropologist, is quite accurate when he describes Long's book as an unsafe book. It is unsafe, because he disrupts our normal modes of thinking about religion, culture, and materiality. He makes us think about our thinking. If you wish to remain the same, you should not read Charles Long. Indeed, Charles Houston Long's contributions in the Academy and Life reflect what best can be described in his words as a narrative of meaning that is commensurate with the quality of life that was fired in the crucible of oppression. (laughs)
11: <laughs> what
12: did they find yeah. look, They found
21: the boy. Ah, you, know, oh, you gotta Dace know and ethnic distinction. Yeah, he already so got it broken up. Look out. here, man, black scholars. Yeah. Objectivity. Wow. Let us see what he's thinking of. Oh, yeah. look at that, man. What does that say, man? You got W.B. the boys, man, because somebody wrote in there. That's not uh, his writing. Oh, uh, no. Nah. Somebody wrote this stuff in there, but this is him. Yeah, this is him him, right man. So you want to keep those the pages. Yeah, page, right there. Yeah. So I just thought we could bring it Cracket, cracket, shake it. Cracket,
12: cracket, shake it. Don't go there, more, love. Babo, take babo, babe. Cracket, shake
21: it. She be in the mongo, caboo, do. Yen in babo. i Walk 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 walk
11: walk walk Man, is just rich in here, so rich. Oh, there's so many yeah. little note papers
21: like that everywhere. This is where he would sit, too. Uh huh. Oh, right no, he yeah,
14: he would come, yeah, out, he would come out, here. out here and smoke. Yeah. Yeah, This is fun. He would just sit out <laughs> and smoke.
9: Yeah. yeah. Gazing and. Reflecting and thinking
14: right
9: here. A lot
14: of hours. Uh oh, you okay, Ray? Ray?
8: Yeah, bang, 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 bang.
21: (laughs) You see that shed over there? That shed is actually, it's a. You know, it's an opening to another world. Is what it, it, is. Is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's, that's, a there, good. Yeah, that's what when Robert said. Out, when you come out, it could be the year 2050. Maybe <laughs> 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 you're may only in there an hour, but when you come out, it's yeah. 2050. Yeah, you... <laughs> It is like
9: black folklore in there, man. Uh, yeah. Okay. Those uh. Those foul cabins for Yeah. The yeah. gold
11: mine
21: up in there, dog. Yeah. Okay. Look <laughs> 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 okay. nice. so right right right. the Right here, on, man. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. Listen to this. Here's what he underlined. God's love for the world is taken seriously seems to suggest that there are things which are genuinely not himself, wow. whose activities are not completely determined by his agency. Oh, wow. That's what I was talking about yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that's it. That's what he liked. Yeah, he liked that stuff. Not determined by his agency. That is God's agency. Yeah. Let me see who wrote this, man. God and the world. <laughs> William Christian. Yeah. William yeah, Christian, Yeah, <laughs> So excited. William Christian. I can, I can, I can. This wow. is him in 1948, man. Wow. This is what forms the the school. Wow. I gave man, 1948. Yeah. Look at that. You got Vach in there, oh, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mark, oh yeah. 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 We got to look at that.
11: <laughs> I'm, 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 I might have to I steal want this when nobody knows it. With, <laughs> I wonder what the sign
9: yeah. No, take it back as a um, as so
21: you can show it hey to Hey, man. Um... Look over there, man. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so what is what is that? Buddy? Well, this is a 1948 journal uh, of religious. This even before he did his PhD. Right, right, And it's all these articles, but he's got all these underlines. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you can see how he
14: reads. Telling yeah. us how he reads. Yeah. 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 And the
11: thing you to too
14: it was a lot to do. And they got many, many boxes. And we were so thankful for Joy and Ray Ray to be able to save all his papers. And uh, Mama always says that Daddy would have been so happy. Mama knew that Ray Ray was very interested in Daddy's works. And so was um, David. And I remember when you all were here, I remember, you know, the study was a, uh, somewhat a mess, you know, forgot. And I remember Ray Ray sitting on the floor, which we would have never done, saying, "Oh my gosh, this is a scholar's, this is a scholar's uh, uh, study." And mm-hmm. I thought, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was so glad we chose Ray Ray because Ray Ray gets Daddy. He understood mm-hmm. his mind. and um, I just think that it, it was a joy to work with both of you to preserve Daddy's um, papers and books. For time immemorial.
13: Long was regarded as the preeminent scholar of African American religious history in the United States. His books include Alpha, The Myths of Creation, 1963, The History of Religions, 1967, Myth and Symbols, Essays in Honor of Mircea Eliade, 1969, Significations. Signs, Symbols, and Images, in the Interpretation of Religion, 1986, and Ellipsis, the Collected Writings of Charles H. Long, including numerous articles and manuscripts. His thought was groundbreaking. And he inspired generations of professors, pastors, scholars, and activists, many of whom have become prominent nationally and internationally. The journey begins. Codex Charles H. Long Papers Project.
15: You ask my dad for $2, he might give you 10, and he'll just kind of crunch it in your hand and say, young man needs some walking around money.
9: Thank you. Thank you.
8: Hope you enjoyed it.
9: Let us, we now want to say a word about our friend whose voice you heard in that documentary. He's a multi-Emmy award-winning actor, and as I mentioned to someone yesterday when speaking to a friend about his great voice, I noted that he has a greater heart. Keith David is the consummate professional as an actor. He's a person of integrity and uncommon insight. His filmography speaks for itself.
8: For sure. And um, well, you, you all know a lot of his films. Just say one thing you've seen him in. I'll start with Platoon. On, on three, call out something. One, two, three. Green Oh, OK. <laughs> Greenly. <laughs> Lion King. You can just go on and on. So. <laughs> but what many
9: don't know is Keith is not here as a draw or some type of prop. Keith has been a serious student of theology. And religion for years now, and it's an, an especially close student of Dr. James Cone's theology and Dr. Long's religious thought.
8: And um, his interest and commitment to the project um, is partly demonstrated by the fact that he had to get permission to leave set, so he's literally on contract. And he took a red eye to be with us today. And I just want to thank you so much. Uh, and he took leave in order to join us today, and I call him the professor, literally because he, he his intellectual thought and and the kind of conversations we have are just really strong. And he's currently working on a a a show called Duster that he is filming in New Mexico. So, which is
9: a new crime thriller? Yes. So it should be thrilling.
8: He is Duster.
9: <laughs> you can hear the resonance of my voice. <laughs> Keith David epitomizes what Dr. Long means when he writes that opaque theologies, those theologies and religious studies that address the underside, should, quote, make common cause with folklorists, novelists, poets, and many other non-theological types who are involved in the discernment of these meanings, that is, meanings of history, freedom, and justice. So we are deeply honored to have him here with us today. Keith will begin in our next segment with, reading a, uh, with a reading of several of Dr. Long's pieces which represent some aspect of the papers. We have an article he will read from, a letter written to Jennifer Reed in 1998. He will elect a piece from a lecture and a piece from Significations. And so we're gonna invite Keith to the stage and also we will invite a number of brilliant scholars who will come up and respond to Keith now, we call this section in your book, in your, in your program, interstices. Now, the reason for that, that's one of those Charles Long-type words, interstices, because Charles Long was concerned with what he called in-betweenness. So you hear terms like interstices or imbrications Or he would be trying to imagine this notion of intervening in conversations in some way. And the word interstices, the reason why I I like that term is I I remember looking up the definition once. It was talking about when you look at a tree with the sun behind it and you see the the light coming through the leaves. That's what we hope you will see today with the various scholars who will respond to Dr. Long's works. We put their biographies here to save time. But the thing that that really stood out, Dr. Lupina said it best when he wrote me. He said, thank you for honoring our esteemed colleague and mentor, Dr. Long. And I think when he said that, he was speaking for this whole group. who have a deep respect for Dr. Long. So we want to invite you all to the stage. Enduring
8: relationship. Thank you. Please, please join us on stage, scholars.
13: Good afternoon. afternoon. (laughs) This is from Dr. Long's Structural Similarities and Dissimilarities in Black and African Theologies. The image of Africa as it appears in the religion of blacks in the United States is unique. For the black community in America is a landless people unlike the American Aborigine the the land was not taken from him and unlike Africans in South Africa or Zimbabwe the land is not occupied by groups whom the Africans consider aliens the black American image of the land points to the religious meaning of the land even in the absence of legitimation the image of Africa thus emerges as one invested with Great historical and religious possibilities. The issue of the image of Africa does not arise in the same manner for Africans. Africans know and live a concrete relationship with the place which is for them Africa. Africa as a reality is embedded in their customs, speech, dress, and all the normal forms of cultural and societal reality. The Africans in Africa are the Aborigines. They have a place which has which has been time honored by their traditions and their way of life. To be sure, Western colonialism has been disruptive of several of the cultural forms, but the African has never been as alien and isolated in Africa as has his progeny in the United States. And there is a sense of confidence that comes from this heritage. Whether the African chooses to or not, at least the option of a usable past is open to him, a usable past based on the traditions of concrete experience handed down from generation to generation.
9: Now, Dr. Lupena, will respond.
22: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is indeed a celebration, and as we say in Yoruba uh, culture and language, "Asho Kiatu Kiara." We greet the clothes we wear first, before we greet the wearers of the clothes. So I want to acknowledge that and express how beautiful you are. Uh, Welcome to this celebration. I thank the organizers of this conference, uh, our friend uh, Joey and uh, Raymond Carr for including me in this uh, uh, symposium. And of course my search is to uh, reflect on the words of wisdom written by a friend, our mentor, uh, Professor Chas Long, and thank you, uh, Corey, for the brilliant uh, presentation uh, you gave us early today. We are very grateful to uh, 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 to you. And as Chas Long uh, uh, wrote in his book, uh, uh, Signification, uh, which I also uh, uh, wrote the, uh, the, uh, the 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 blog, I think I'm one of them. I, um, in my reflection on that, I described how it's not only is it a landmark book in the history of religions, but that the book will remain a durable classic in the study of indigenous religion, uh, drawing on the wisdom and indigenous uh, uh, knowledge of the African and African-American tradition. And that these personal experiences of the people he wrote about. And his readings of African and interpretations of African myth are quite significant to us. And so for those of us who have been privileged to uh, you know, be under his influence, as one of the speakers said earlier on, most of us were not trained by him. <coughs> but uh, we came under him, and he became you know, a mentor. And this is one of the reasons why we miss him today. So my basic contribution, briefly, is not only to talk about his work, or at least a few I'm allowed to uh, discuss here, but to also say how much we missed uh, the Raboni, the teacher, and the master. Charles Long doesn't boast of being a historian of religion. He doesn't really talk much about it. But he believes so much in acting it, in doing it, and calling attention to some of these key issues here. If you make the mistake of asking uh, Charles Long to be the keynote speaker or to lead a particular uh, 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 conference and to be the first speaker, uh, I say you make the mistake because it will succeed in changing the agenda and uh, making you feel pretty small that you have not really given the topic the kinds of deep thought that uh, you that is needed. And as I look at on that, I am reminded again of the Yoruba uh, uh, understanding of autochtonity, the autochthonous inhabitant of a land uh, that is seen not only as something to be preserved, but as something that we have to tread on gently and gingerly. In my mother's hometown, there is a very, very important anse- ancestral a uh, 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 masquerade. Who really sings and looks around and says Omunile tejeje tejeje? That is the owner of the land, the autochthonous creation of the land. Say the Native Americans, the Eurobas themselves. And so they, what do they do? They walk gently. They gently. But the foreigners so come and invade them. What do they do? They do the opposite of it. And that is exactly why we are in trouble uh, today. So Charles Long calls attention to the importance not only of land and matter and materiality, but how people live their lives and how to retain their humanity in the context of that. We are aware today that uh, as, as, as uh, professors here and students at, 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 at Harvard, we have been made to recognize the, not only the legacy of slavery, but through uh, which medium, the fact that this land, the land where we are in, it does not belong to us. It was taken from the people and the people who suffered and who still suffer the consequences of our action. But as scholars of religion, we are made to reflect on this because we believe uh, fully well that in trying as much as possible to acknowledge our transgression. And as the Bible to say that the sin, our sins are always before us. We need to make amends, not only in the debate about uh, reparation, but that we need to give a space to the original owners of this land. So that you know together we can, we, can, we can move on. What is very interesting to me is the relevance of Charles Long's theories and ideas to virtually most of the events that are taking place in Africa today. And I'll give you one example. In my own distant country, Nigeria, we just had a very troubling election. And then there was a crisis in Lagos, one of the largest cities in the world. And what was it? It was between the uh, aboriginals, original owners of the land, and the migrants who came. What triggered the violence? Just one statement. Lagos is no man's land. Mm. It was when they had this thing that the people said, Our land is no man's land. We need to tell you that Lagos belongs to a group of people. And I conclude by saying that it's a very difficult, uh, very difficult for us to forget our master and teacher, Charles Long, because it's forget, uh, it is difficult not to see the lasting effect of his ideas and theories. And even when we have constantly, as professors and scholars, tried to reinvent new ideas, to recreate new theories, to recreate new uh, new opportunities, we cannot but continue to reflect on his work because of the, new, the meaning and the interpretations that he gave us and the importance of it as we apply those ideas to our own work. Thank you very much.
9: Thank you. This next reading is from a letter to Jennifer Reed, and this is Movement 2. Now on to
13: the gods, surpluses and exchange. First, to exchanges. Exchange is simply a more precise way of speaking about life. Human life is a series of exchanges. And from these exchanges, surpluses emerge. These surpluses are the kind of glue or ooze or viscous texturization of the meaning of life in the community with which these exchanges are made in the normality of anyone's life. They become stylized, narrated, made into rules, etc. The surpluses are also powers that are related to the human mode, but not totally under or defined by the human mode, though they emerge when humans engage in exchanges. This is the force of Levi Strauss's statement that humans think that they make language. It may be that language makes the human. So again, Vandelier, Van Gods are not the first thing about religion. It is rather the recognition of the power that emerges from life. And if human beings are to be human, they oppose themselves with, to this power as something other. The meaning and imagination of the gods come from the simulations, come from the simultaneous opposition to them. As, uh, as an affirmation of the human mode. But of course, this opposition or tension does not mean that the gods go away. Rather, it means that one must perforce live with the gods.
17: Thank you so much, Mr. David. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And thank you also Dean Hempton and Harvard Divinity School and David Carrasco in the Moses Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project for co-sponsoring this event. And of course, Joycar and Raycar for organizing the symposium and for their kind invitation to participate. As it happens, I actually remember this email from 25 years ago. I, when I read it, I went, I, know, I remember that one. I recall thinking at the time that I would possibly just read significations in a single paragraph. <laughs> um, this afternoon, I want to speak a little about how embedded this email's content was in Dr. Long's method- method- methodology, and perhaps more importantly, why his informal correspondences are a significant part of his written record. Mm-hmm. Dr. Long loved contact zones, exchanges, surpluses, and gods and the way we negotiate our identities in relation to things that are not ourselves. Consequently, he was also a critic of the Enlightenment. He once wrote in a letter that knowing anything should always start with, quote, stuff, some people somewhere, a little artifact, a strange text, some weird kind of gesture, end quote, things that presume relationships and exchange. He maintained that the enlightenment and mercantilism had upended the material structure of European identity by defining stuff as gross <clears throat> matter and abstracting the dominant medium of exchange, money, into a neutral species that defies systems of reciprocity. With money, there are no surplus meanings, no mutuality, no experiences as something more than a finite transaction. <laughs> And it's that something more, Dr. Long said, the preconceptual surplus meanings of exchange that define our identities in relation to one another, the gods, and the cosmos. Hence his abiding respect for Marcel Moss's The Gift, Mirce Iliade's Patterns of Comparative Religion, and later work by Gary Tromp and Bill Peets on Cargo Cults and the Fetish, all of which focused on the humanly defining power of the exchange of stuff. While Dr. Long believed that the Enlightenment had negated an efficacious European meaning of exchange, he was not a conventional iconoclast. Rather, he wanted to rethink the Enlightenment because, as he often said, we can't begin de novo. He expressed this in a terrific way at one point in a letter in which an extended discussion we'd been having about Descartes took a curious turn. I knew Dr. Long's general issue at Descartes. A man, he often said, who initiated a mode of thinking that detached the knowing self from that which is to be known. But on this occasion, he took a different tack. He wrote, quote, Anselm reported that his proofs for the existence of God were communicated to him in a dream by an angel. As a matter of fact, in two dreams on consecutive nights. I never thought of this before, but is it not strange that Anselm's achievement is encompassed by the Oniric and Descartes' entree into modernity by meditations, dreams and meditations. Where do they stand now? What are their roles in the thinking of those who now think in our culture, end quote. He then suggested a rereading of Vico's New Science and it all clicked. Scholars generally set Vico's counter-enlightenment concern with rhetoric and poetry in opposition to Descartes' enlightenment rationalism. But Dr. Long made a rather compelling observation, both men like Anselm before them, were trading in dreams and meditations as repositories of surplus meanings that were prior to rational thought. This was an intriguing way to think about the origins of modernity, to imagine that the old European systems of what Rudolf Otto would have called the non-rational didn't go away, that they were simply hidden beneath an emerging hegemonic veneer of rationality. Dr. Long's correspondence has provided a unique glimpse of him and often, like his thoughts on Anselm Descartes and Vico, different possibilities for thinking about modernity. He was also, as we all know, hyper-conscious of the power of words and formal writing truly intimidated him. His words were so painfully poured over that he was left at times wordless. Where his words came more easily were first in classrooms and public lectures where he spoke more informally while remaining within stylized traditions of black preaching and University of Chicago erudition. But they came even more effortlessly around a table with good food and wine and friends, and in phone conversations, letters and emails where intellectual engagement and human connection muddled together and words flowed most easily absent the pressure of being held forever accountable in the Library of Congress. In his personal correspondences, Dr. Long constantly danced between ideas, professional and personal concerns, memories, music, and his children and grandchildren. They were spaces where he didn't fuss about his thoughts and words being thoroughly consistent. The most exasperating and engaging thing about these conversations was his ability to pivot positions on a dime. These were spaces in which he tried out different options for thinking and knowing, where exchanges and conversation generated surpluses, new ideas that stretched him and whomever was engaging with him. I recall one extended argument over the value of hierarchy in society, something he reeled against for the longest time. I believe he used the word scourge at one point when I said that as a Canadian, I quite liked having the queen as head of state. In the midst of this ongoing dispute and without warning one day, Dr. Long began waxing about the connection he and his wife Alice felt to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, the two couples having wed each other around the same time. They kept a scrapbook of the British royals for years, a fairy tale collection of newspaper and magazine clippings of their engagement and wedding, the births of their children, their travels and their intrigues. And he, he wanted me, as an armchair monarchist, to know that. (laughs) These kinds of musings were common and sometimes perplexing, but in retrospect, I think they were extended meditations flowing from a frustration with modernity's parsing of knowledge into discrete and often dichotomous categories. They were spaces where he wove together the intellectual, emotional, and personal, and gave himself permission to think differently and to muse without an answer. Dr. Long's personal correspondence has brought his intellectual rigor into conversation with his dreams and meditations. And he expected whoever he was speaking with to reciprocate in order to keep the conversation going. Okay. Thank
9: you. In this third reading, Movement Three, we have a reading from a monograph, Significations, and the respondent is Dr. Diane am Stewart.
13: but what would be a history stemming from the oppressed are they destined to imitate and repeat a destructive cycle of events the appearance of theologies opaque might promise another alternative of a structural sort. But only if these theologies move beyond the structural power of theology as the normative mode of discourse and contemplate a narrative of meaning that is commensurate with the quality of beauty that is fired in the crucible of oppression. Those who have lived in the cultures of the oppressed know something about freedom that the oppressors will never know. Opaque theologies in their deconstructive tasks will be able to make common cause with folklorists, novelists, poets, and other non-theological types who are involved in the discernment of these meanings.
6: Thank you Mr. David. Dr. Carr you couldn't have picked a better orator. I feel like I'm listening to the voice of God. It's a pleasure and really an honor and a privilege to be back at my alma mater to see Dr. Preston Williams and and Miss Connie as well um, and to be here with friends and um, and people who feel like family. So thank you for including me in this memorable and needed and desired event. In his posthumous text, Said I Wasn't Gonna Tell Nobody, James Cone finally freed himself from the confines of systematic theology and offered a new definition of of the black theologian, one I needed but had never heard when I was studying under his tutelage in the mid 1990s. I was pleasantly surprised when my eyes landed upon the following words from his final message to America. And I'm quoting, yet as a theologian and interpreter of the religious imagination of black people, I felt I had much to say, end of quote. As much as James Cone and Charles Long debated and pursued their intellectual intentions through different scholarly methods and discourses, this new definition of the black theologian as an interpreter of the religious imagination of black people was the closest Dr. Cone came to adopting a disposition that approached the kind of work Charles Long encourages in the text we just heard. Dr. Long was indeed referring to what he called theologies opaque. And he turned his attention to the early works of James Cone and Vine Deloria to explore the potential and limitations of their scholarship. Dr. Long summed up their explosive interventions when he wrote in his wider essay, and I'm quoting, in every case, the claim of these theologies is more than an accusation regarding the actions and behavior of the oppressive cultures. The claim, quote, goes to the heart of the issue. It is an accusation regarding the worldview, thought structures, theory of knowledge, and so on of the oppressors. The accusation is not simply of bad acts, but more important of bad faith and bad knowledge. End of quote. Long seemed satisfied with this deconstructive focus of Cohn's and Deloria's projects. However, he had no faith in the theological frameworks they used to launch their arguments. Quote, is theological discourse appropriate for this intention? Long queried. His answer was a resounding no. Theology, as it has been executed in the history of Western Christianity, does not have the tools to access, Long's, in Long's words, the self-definitional intimacy of an impressed community. Theological language and categories long intimated prevented opaque theologians from giving attention, quote, in a precise manner to the modes of experience and expression that form these communities in their inner, and intimate lives, end of quote. Long made it clear that he was not arguing for a romantic return to an earlier period, but rather an identification and deployment of the, quote, resources that might enable us to generate another kind of meaning for the temporal, spatial existence of human beings on this globe. Long perceived that the discourses of Western enlightenment, including theology, had no resources to penetrate black intimate life. He preferred that opaque theologians align with folklorists, novelists, poets, and artists because they had the creative disposition, clarity of mind, and spiritual substance to probe and articulate the value of black intimacy, life, and knowledge on their own terms. And by there I mean intimacy, life, and knowledge. Black artists convey their intimacy, life, and knowledge, surplus of meaning through modes that accommodate the rhythms, textures, and silences of Black being and Black culture. Those meanings long kept telling us across His corpus of thought are illegible in Western scripts and lose their full power and effects when translated into academic modes of discourse. Approximation is the best outcome of all our attempts to quote, contemplate a narrative of meaning that is commensurate with the quality of beauty that was fired in the crucible of oppression. In alignment with standard Western Christian theological approaches to God and community, opaque theologians turned their attention to a biblical narrative and to the task of relating that narrative to the experiences of oppressed people. However, Dr. Long's interventions disclosed a reality that the oppressed people themselves have a sacred narrative of recreation that has gone unnoticed in the works of opaque theologians, particularly black theologians. Yet, the one we call the father of black liberation theology, James Cone, had begun to move in the direction that Long recommended, which is the reason I believe he ended his life thinking in a new way about the identity and scholarly vocation of the black theologian. Cone's theological mode and source materials had certainly shifted in not only his final book, but also in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which he published in 2011. There were always epistemic apertures in Dr. Cone's scholarship that invited theological and religious analysis of diverse traditions of black faith and black culture. Throughout The Cross and the Lynching Tree, however, Dr. Cone prioritized black artists, perceptive witness to the horrors of lynching and black subjugation, showing how the artistic imagination has freed black creatives from disciplinary politics and commitments such that they can apprehend and portray black people's lived religion with more insight, accuracy, nuance, and provocation than most theologians. The cross and the lynching tree appropriately facilitates the intersection of black theology and black art, staging a long overdue conversation between both reflective enterprises. From this meditative exercise, Dr. Cohn concluded that, and I'm quoting, when black artists and writers looked at the cross and the lynching tree and reflected on their relationship to Jesus and the mob violence of whites against blacks in American history, they saw a black Christ hanging and burning on a white cross. The cross and the lynching tree archives Dr. Cohn's conceptual deployment of an arts-based methodology to perform the required work of what the late Juan Luis, Luis Segundo would call the liberation of theology. Unlike preachers and theologians, Dr. Cohn maintained, artists, this is a quote, and writers were not bound by the inherited, static, religious tradition of white supremacists. Black artists, he goes on to explain, were defined by their creative resistance against an oppressive status quo. They were free to say anything that gave black people liberating visions of their humanity, end of quote. Hence, Dr. Cone peppers his contemplation of black death with the spirituals, poetry, blues, novels, parables, and short stories of black artists. Only through a profound apprehension of black art did Dr. Cone come to develop not just a theology of the cross, but most importantly, to a scholar such as Dr. Long, a theology of the lynching tree. Cone follows a similar trajectory. Instead, I wasn't going to tell nobody. The subtle, but I would argue most salient and significant contribution of this text is that it shows across an entire arc of Dr. Cone's theological career how the musics of black suffering and delight constituted his principal sacred text to a degree that I don't believe he was liberated enough to even recognize as a. Th- systematic theologian. Black musical and lyrical legacies were both inspiration and source for Cone, as they have been for those who have produced them and those who have sourced them to create spaces of sociality that accommodate black freedom in an anti-black world. And what I'm saying is, here is where Cone and, and Long come together, and I think Uh, there is a call for a new method in theology, a new way of doing theology. Not sure if Dr. Long would have approved, but I think he would have liked the direction that I see Dr. Cohn moving us toward in these last two books. In my own recent text, Obia Orisha and Religious Identity in Trinidad, volume two, Orisha, Africana Nations, and the power of black sacred imagination, I have tried to bridge the mature theological identity I perceived in Dr. Cohn's final text with Dr. Long's phenomenological insights into black religion heard in the passage that our illustrious orator just read. And if any of you have a chance to read um, chapter four of that book, you will, you will have insight into the acts of recreation and the reimagination of matter, I attempt, attempt to interpret in the sacred poetics of Iyalode Wumi and other post Black Power era Yoruba Orisha Ifa priestesses in that text. Iyalode Shangowumi is literally one of the opaque ones whose shrine has been a center from which gods, new sacred texts, and new evocations of Ashe have been made and materialized. My study of Yoruba Orisha Ifa devotion in Trinidad allows me to respond to Dr. Long with the affirmation that there is a new narrative of meaning and a new meaning of being as belonging that we can decipher from these and other self-definitional intimacies in the sacred poetics of African heritage religions in the Caribbean and the Americas. Thank you.
9: In this fourth reading, in this fourth reading, we have Movement Four, which comes from a keynote address called Legacy of Slavery. I won't read the full keynote, you can read it in your program. And we'll have responding Dr. Tracy Hucks.
13: What I see in the new meaning of looking at slavery and talking about reparations is that, at least for the tradition of African Americans, it becomes clear that no movement can operate that simply understands itself as pawns of the American Constitution. That, Ameri- that African Americans cannot do that because they are water people. In other words, that journey across the water has not been resolved. And what needs to be thought about again is that on those boats coming across the water, there were Europeans and Africans on the same boat. They were on the same boat, but they, were not, but they were taking two different journeys. And those two journeys cannot be reconciled simply by having good thoughts and thinking in universal terms. Those two journeys must be reconciled in terms of a concrete meaning of what happened to those two groups. One of the problems, I think, of the old civil rights movement is that it was filled with a certain kind of misplaced affection. A misplaced affection that thinking that through enlightenment categories of universalism and abstract definitions of everybody's human, that we might realize, well, it doesn't make any difference. Everybody's human. It doesn't make any difference what, color, what, what your color is. We're all human. Or that through some great burst of Christian charity, we might be able to know that since God loves us, we ought to love each other. But of course, that didn't happen. So I see this new movement as going back into the water that we have gone back into the water to reorient ourselves not only about the destiny and meaning of African-Americans, but about the destiny and meaning of what kind of future human beings have on the face of this earth.
19: Thank you. And I thank you on behalf of Dr. Long. I lost my mother when I was a teenager and I lost my dad shortly before COVID. And Dr. Long called me and said, now that you lost your dad, you will need another dad. And I will be that father. And I will call on you and I will check on you and I will stand in for that great man, for his daughter. And I stand here as one who has lost two fathers now. (laughs) On March 22, 2018, Dr. Long autographed as a gift to me his newly published book with the following words. Quote, for Tracy, I'm honored and proud to have had some role in your wonderful career. Charles H. Long. What Dr. Long didn't realize was that he didn't have just some role in my career. He had one of the most profound roles in cultivating my thinker as a scholar. When I was here as a doctoral student at Harvard and had my comprehensive exams, Dr. Long was my major thinker. And when I was here as a graduate student, I met for the first time Professor Jacob Alupena, who introduced me to Charles Long the teacher, the mentor, and had me as a graduate student present on an AAR panel in honor of Dr. Long with some of the greatest minds of that generation. Thank you. Thank you. The video Voices of the Gods ask the questions of Africans in the Atlantic world of the Americas and the Caribbean, what will be the sacred words for me, it was in the works and words of Dr. Charles H. Long where I found the intellectual tools with which to excavate the sacred words of black religion. As descendants of those who experienced captivity from Africa, Dr. Long says we were transformed and transfigured into water people. In Africa, we revered Nyami Nyami of the Batango, Simbi and Mpulu Mamba Mutu of the Congo, Sesibwe, Mamiwata, Yewa, Alosha, Oshuna, Yemoja of the Yoruba, the water deities of Africa's sacred geography and land. Long was very much persuaded by Mertia Iliadis' theorizing of the water. According to Iliade's Patterns in Comparative Religion quote, To state the case in brief, water symbolizes the whole of potentiality. It is Fonzet Origo, the source of all possible existence, principle of what is formless and potential, basis of every cosmic manifestation, container of all seeds. Water symbolizes the primal substance from which all forms come and to which they will return, either by their own regression or in a cataclysm." End quote. Iliades was an abstract understanding of cataclysm. However, long understood there was concreteness in this cataclysm, a sudden violent upheaval in the form of chattel slavery across the waters of the Middle Passage that forced new aquatic cognitions of religious orientation for African people. To whom does one pray from the bowels of a slave ship? Mm -hmm. To the gods of Africa? To the gods of the masters of the slave vessels? To whom does one pray? I have been citing this passage of Long for well over a decade because of his insistence that, quote, from the perspective of religious experience, this was the beginning of African-American religion and culture. It was this violent maritime ritual of African capture, enslavement, and transport that, according to Long, Forfeited the Atlantic as a womb for the gestation and birth of religions; instead, the Atlantic for Long was deemed a modern site of negative revelation, bereft of what he calls soul stuff, forsaking itself as revealer of deity seers and prophets, all for the price of reason, civilization, and rational orders. I'm developing an essay on Long's epistemology of the water arguing that it profits a new primordialism of origins and beginnings of Africana religions, a temporality that incorporates an Atlantic chronology of journey and advances and other spatiality whereby new orientations to African religions were birthed in the watery crucible of the Atlantic. Many of us know for the, for the great W.E.B. Du Bois, the unasked question was, how does it feel to be a problem? Dr. Long's unasked question to those of us who do Africana religious studies is, how does it feel to have to do scholarship with the Atlantic as primordial, as preponderance of death and brutality, as pugnacity of violence, and as what Dr. Long calls a demonic dread through which Africans were forced into history as terror. In a historical situation where Long argues, quote, African people brought no other texts with them other than their bodies. <laughs> According to Long, quote, the Middle Passage chained enslaved Africans in the holds of several ships of every Atlantic maritime nation, as never forgotten by the Africans, neither during slavery nor in freedom. The watery passage of the Atlantic, he says, that fearsome journey, that cataclysm of modernity, has served as a mnemonic structure, evoking a memory that forms a disjunctive and involuntary presence of these Africans in the Atlantic world. From this perspective, Long concludes, religion is not a cultural system, much less rituals or performance, nor theological language, but an orientation a basic turning of the soul toward another defining reality. And in that, Long's epistemology of the water as it relates to African people cannot be conclusively totalized as the domain of destruction because water was also the space of our reorientation and our recreation of another defining reality. Water in its a priori meaning for Long speaks to quote, the unformed, unstable, pregnant reality out of which the universe comes. It is the symbol of the uncreated chaos. It is undeniable for long that what he calls Africans initiation into the Atlantic world of modernity occurred at the violent juncture of, U- of Europeans' aqua time and hydrospace, that countless atrocities occurs occurred, such as when one of the last slave ships of the Dutch West India Company left Ghana's Almeida Castle in 1737 with 700 Africans bound for Suriname, ran into trouble in the sea. And to save themselves, the captain ordered the sailors to nail down the hatches. And by morning, all 664 men, women, and children of African descent were dead on the Atlantic. Yet the African-American water people to whom Long referred in the quote, have demonstrated a historical capaciousness to self-create, to redefine another reality from the uncreated chaos of that same water. Because of this, Long sees African-descended peoples as equal harbingers of modernity with their self-defined understandings of the human and freedom. When I begin my Africana research and scholarship from this locus, the negative revelation of the modern Atlantic does not get to have the last word, because even then long inspires me to call upon the generative resources of the religious symbol of Africa to create new language, to develop new categories, and to excavate African spiritual heritage resources such as Olokun the Yoruba deity who is the owner of all waters, the entity that covers over 70% of the earth, The Orisha Yemoja covers the domain of the top of the ocean on which boats journey, but Olokun is the bottom two-thirds of the ocean, the space of extreme pressure and perpetual darkness and mystery. All the oceans and seas form an integrated unit and together may be properly called the world ocean. With Olokun as ruler, the Atlantic ocean alone can never dictate the final conclusion of African descendant stories. Diasporate Africans understand that Olokun holds the keys to the mysteries about the history of the cross-Atlantic passage. Olokun's realm of secrets holds the link that connects blacks with their ancestral path. In this sense, one has only to think about the millions of captives who were lost during that passage and who entered the kingdom of Olokun carrying cultural and ancestral links with them. But unbeknownst to the European, as Yoruba Babalao, Dr. Kola Abimbalo attests, the female deity Olokun lives in the depths of the Atlantic Ocean, which is believed to be one of the gateways to Orunodo, heaven below. Thus, within the cosmological orientation of Africa's Olokun, the grave of the Atlantic cannot consume or hold our African ancestors and is transformed through new orientations and gateways to heaven below. In the end, our colleague who wished to be here, Dr. Rachel Harding, is right. Dr. Charles H. Long was more like a baba, a spiritual and intellectual priest, than a mentor. For me, a language has not yet been created to express my gratitude and thanksgiving for the blessing Dr. Long was in my life. As one of the water people, I attempted these words in the acknowledgments of my first book and I will leave this offering with you. Quote, I reserve the deepest love, affection and intellectual reverence for Dr. Charles H. Long. In you I have known unconditional steadfast and unwavering support. You dare to challenge and disrupt sacred Western epistemologies in the humanities and the social sciences. Dare to think that the study of black religion deserves sophisticated and complex analysis and theorization, and I dare to believe you. Your prophetic presence in the field has transformed my life forever. I owe you a debt only the ancestors can repay. Ashe. Ashe.
9: Let's, let's give them all a hand. Let's give them all a hand. And Keith David. Keith David. What a wonderful, what a wonderful presentation. Yeah. We're going to have our closing keynote. That's going to be Dr. David Carrasco. I want to ask Dr. David to come up now. I don't see him. I know he's somewhere in here. Come on up. Profe. My friend.
8: There is still food well waiting, so no worries.
9: Yeah, we're going to make sure that we uh, make this intro brief. He's a man, really, in this context, needs no introduction. But I will, I'm going to say just one or two things pretty quickly. Um, there are two academics on Dr. Long's wall at his home. One was his teacher, Joachim And the other wasn't on the, all, on the wall in the study. It was on the wall in the family side of the room, of of the house, and it was David Carrasco at the door. Now, I don't know who put the picture there. I think it was Alice Long that probably put the picture there. (laughs) But he used to babysit Dr. Long's children. And so they have a a relationship that goes all the way back to the late 60s. And so when I think of Dr. David Carrasco, and this is the last thing I'll say that's tied to this, I do my work on a thinker by the name of, or a music, musician by the name of Thelonious Monk. And Monk has a song called Rhythm-A-Ning, rhythm And when I think of David Carrasco, he's a person that doesn't just have his own rhythm. I mean, you walk to him, he has this kind of rhythm. Hey, Ray, Ray, what's going on, man? How you
19: doing? This?
9: It's like, yeah, this is just, that's his style, right? So he has his own rhythm, but what I love about him is he helps other people find their rhythm. Yes. And that's important. Rebecca would attest to that. Pedro would attest to that. Jeremel would attest to that. These are students that I have seen him help find their rhythm. And he's helped me find my rhythm, and my wife find her rhythm. And so we're grateful to you for the role you play in relation to these papers, because we don't think that these papers would be here, we would be talking about them today without David Carrasco.
21: Look, man, if you liked me so much, you wouldn't make me talk after Joy's song. That should have been that. Should have been right before the libation, man. So come on, man. Yeah. Come on, man. You put me in a tough spot. So you know, I uh, I think a lot of us. I feel very emotional. Those of us who knew him and loved him and learned from him uh, know that he would be so pleased to see all of this and hear all of this today. Uh, those of us who knew him for a long time knew that there were periods of time where he wondered what would happen to his legacy. Uh, there was a period of time when he was hoping that black scholars would come uh, under, his, under his tutelage in a more direct way. And now that has happened, and it's a marvelous thing. Because there was some time there where he felt lonely, uh, and as you hear the scholarship, the feeling, the insights, the commitments, the community today—no man—he's, you know, he's resting very well. He's resting very happy today uh, because of this and because of you. you know? So I'm I'm very grateful to be part of this, uh, and I'll tell you why. The first time I saw Charles Long was in 1969, giving a lecture in Swift Hall Commons at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Unlike other professors who lectured in that room, Long was standing in front of the desk, closer to the students. He was wearing a handsome light brown leather jacket that, to my eyes, had a tinge of the color of blood in it he was lecturing on the sacredness of the sky and told us that the sky was sacred because it was the source and location of all life above the earth. He said to the best of my memory, quote, the sky is where light comes from and darkness too. The sky is where heat comes from and cold too and wind and snow the sky is where the human begins to contemplate the power and mystery of the tremendous divine. He said, the sky is where uncanny sounds come from in the thunder. It's also where fire comes from in those wild and ferocious lightning strikes. And after the fire's died down, are embers and a glow. That first lecture charmed me for two reasons. His words were a unique form of intellectual music, and I could not stop listening. And that day, he introduced us to what he only later called the imagination of matter. But in this case, the sky and its forces were a form of primordial matter. I never called him Charles or Chuck or anything but Professor Long or the teacher. As in this photograph, together on the stairs, looking up at the towers of the Metropolitan Cathedral in Mexico City and at the sky beyond, I always considered him a higher intellectual being and my teacher with a capital T. And I benefited from some distance between us out of respeto, as we say in Spanish, for the truth of his genius. Speaking of Mexico, we went to Mexico several times. He participated in classes, I mean, in courses. uh, And after the Mexicans met him the first time, when I was coming back the next time, they'd always say, Hey, man, you bringing Charles Long? (laughs) 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 Hey, man, I'm bringing him because the Mexicans, they got him. They got him immediately. Uh, They they figured him out right away. They knew the kind of wisdom and power that he had. And so, uh, Bonnie would say, Hey, man, don't come unless you bring in Charles Long. (laughs) I took seven courses with him at the Chicago Divinity School. And I learned that he worked with a double consciousness along the lines of W.B. Du Bois, but he also worked out of what I call a double kinship, a double intellectual kinship, which he signals to us in the dedication of the book Signification. He dedicates that book to my teachers in the public schools of Little Rock, Arkansas, and at the University of Chicago. Now, as we all know, we care for our kin, but we also fuss with them, And he fussed with both of these kinships, the European intellectual enlightenment kinship, but he also struggled and fussed with the African-American kinship, as we've heard here some today. One lineage focused on the hermeneutical circles which flowed through Iliade to Vach, to Otto, to Vandaleo, to Schleiermacher, with visits to Pascal, Descartes, Kant, and those Enlightenment wizards, an interpretive circle that passed through some European anthropologists who paid attention to religion. He read deeply and carefully in these circles to both utilize them and to criticize them. One course I took in this lineage was on two 18th century thinkers, Johann Gottfried von Herder and Giambattista Vico. Vico was his favorite for he relished talking about Vico's book called The New Science and teaching us about Vico's view of history as following a course, recourse, coursey, recoursey pattern, an historical circle that was kept moving by restarts, rebirths, new beginnings. Long taught us to understand something and not merely to be able to describe it or analyze it was to understand how it came into being, in its genesis, its growth, and that its essence consists in coming to be what it is now. Long also emphasized Vico's real view that creation was collective. Of course, for me as a Mexican-American and for Long as an African-American, this word collective is very problematic. Because the question then, well, who's in the collective? And who's in your collective and my collective? You know, 1517 uh, is a big date in my tradition because uh, on the one hand, that's the date that uh, Martin Luther stood up and said, here I stand. But it's the same year that the Spaniards arrived in Mexico and said, here we land. And the problem for the Spaniards was, who's part of the we? Are the indigenous people part of the we? No. Are the African-Americans who we brought over here said this? No, not really. So this question of the creativity is collective. Well, who's in the collective? And we've heard a lot about that today. There was another intellectual kinship, the study of African mythology, African-American lives and religions, and black religions. Most of us don't know that Iliadi played a pivotal role in Long's movement into African studies. Before Long's doctor father died suddenly in 1955, Charles Long was going to write his PhD dissertation on the British anthropologist R.R. Moret, because Moret wrote the raw material of religion and another book called The Sacraments of Simple Folk. Long asked Iliati what I should do now that Vach was gone. And Mircea said softly, I have Long on this on tape. Mircha said, yes, Maret is important, but maybe you might want to write about some people who had real religion and myths, real people, maybe Africa. This was a moment of freedom for Long because he had already been reading about the myths and the people of West Africa, but there wasn't really a sense at the school that this is what you could write a dissertation about. The result was a dissertation entitled Myth, Culture, and History in West Africa. Soon after Significations came out in 1986, the Journal of the History of Religions, check this out, which long co-founded with Iliadi and Kitagawa in 1961, wrote me asking if I would write a book note on Significations get this, of no more than 350 words. <laughs> As a Mexican-American, I felt a panic <laughs> at this gesture of reduction, the threat of erasure of his work and significance. So I penned a letter, there was no internet then, turning down the request, saying the book should be given a full-fledged review essay, and what, is, what are you thinking about? The editors agreed and I published my several thousand-word review called Insight Significations. (laughs) (laughs) But my worry about those who might erase him really persisted, Mm -hmm. and I was really worried about this. So in 1995 at Princeton, I organized a project of collecting and evaluating his papers or published works into an archive. He agreed, and like this, I formed a committee to legitimate and support the project, get who was in in it. It consisted of Tony Morrison, who was enthusiastic about the project, Arnold Rampersad, and Al Raboteau, and Vincent Harding. This committee met with Long over lunch, and the result was a substantial draft of over 93 of his published articles into what was then the Charles Long Reader, put together by my graduate students, Scott Sessions and Reiko Sono. Years later, This served as a resource for the marvelous collection Ellipsis. Now, the best way, I believe, to approach his double kinship is to begin where we heard earlier, to begin where he began with his first book, now a classic, Alpha, Myths of (laughs) Creation, which grew out of that dissertation. In it, he teaches us that his immersion in creation stories from across the world revealed the variety of ways people both hid and revealed what they considered the secret of creation and cultural creativity. And what Long says, and what you know, you know if you know him, is you didn't just have to read the myth. You had to, to, to read it out loud. You had to see it danced. You had to hear the music of it. Because that's the way they knew the secret of creation. And, and they knew it was hidden from others unless you participated in it. And so what I say to people who want to know about Charles Long, you got to read that book and read the myths that he read, because before he wrote Significations, he was immersed in this whole question of what's the secret of creation, how do these people hide it, and how can you find it? Of all the chapters in Alpha, my favorite is the one entitled creation from cosmos and the cosmic egg. He tells us that these two cosmogonic structures, chaos and the cosmic egg, have a relationship in the minds and hearts of many peoples. Here's what he says about chaos. Chaos, which is described in terms of confusion, darkness, and water, carries with it the notions of indeterminacy and potentiality What is being expressed here is the eternity of the stuff of creation. The stuff of creation, says Long, from which creation finally arises, has always existed. Even in its indeterminate form of chaos, the possibility of a cosmos was always present. This is what he wrote about the cosmic egg. Quote, the egg is the potential source of all life this symbolism of a cosmic egg can be extended to cover shells, caverns, dark places, wombs, and the earth. And as we shall see in a moment, the symbolism of the cosmic egg can be extended to the very place where Ray and Joy Carr found Charles Long's papers. (laughs) So shifting to a lighter and celebratory tone, let me tell you how a new meaning of chaos and the cosmic egg came clearer to me on that day that Ray and Joy and I visited the long home in Chapel Hill following the memorial service for Professor Long, a service that they organized. You saw some of this already in the movie. Now, our purpose was to show comfort to the family and begin the assessment of his library and papers. As we entered his home office, we felt his presence in the books photos, and other materialities he kept close to him. But we also felt his presence in the powerful aroma of smoke that began to cling to our clothes. (laughs) The challenge facing us grew to a cosmic proportion when we were told by Alice Long, oh, most of the papers are out back in that big shed you can see. Now, I sat with him a number of times on the back patio smoking together. But he'd never mentioned what that big shed was for, or what was inside. When the two-story shed was opened for us, we experienced a wave of indeterminacy, confusion, chaos, and potentiality. (laughs) The stuff of his creativity snapped our heads back. We saw many boxes, piles of papers, insects, scurries of little creatures. And I wondered, will a Winnebago trickster or Aztec corn goddess pop up and glare at us too? (laughs) Upon entering the shed, I felt we were going back in time to other decades when he first collected, read, and wrote these materials. Dizzy, I retreated to the back porch while Ray and Joy Carr entered the place of Charles Long's hermeneutical circles. <laughs> in some days that followed, they went through the boxes, organized the papers, reboxed them, and dreamed up a home for its future use. Their work revealed that that shed was, in fact, Charles Long's cosmic egg. He left it there for whatever pilgrim sought out its potentialities, its sources for new life, for a reimagination of Charles Long's matters and the Codex Charles Long Papers Project. So returning to that first lecture in Swift Hall years ago, I recall his line, the sky is also where fire comes from in the wild and ferocious lightning strikes that are and after the fires died down are embers and the glow. It is significant to me that the last section of his last book, Ellipsis, is entitled Kindling, Sparks and Embers. And thanks to the cars, to Dean David Hempton for supporting their time at work at HDS. Thanks to Keith David for lending his voice and heart to our gathering. Thanks to all of you, Charles Long, the teacher, is coming back to us out of the shed, out of the embers. And a new hermeneutical circle of fire is bursting forth in this new recourse. So thank you, Ray, and thank you, Joy. And I survived your song.
9: We're now gonna have some brief remarks from Lee Butler and we will also have a libation. We are
0: delighted that we've had this opportunity to be gathered, to reflect together, to celebrate together, to laugh. There were moments of tears that we cried together. We're grateful for all of the participants And I've been asked to offer a reflection and to lead us into a libation. And I will put those together. Libation is a ritual prayer, usually an invocation where we are inviting, we are requesting, we are making a petition to our ancestors, those who have gone before us, those we recognize are still on the other side, our loved ones who are able to offer intercession, that when we have trouble here, we speak to them and they intercede for us to send us help that allows us to get through. We are identifying Charles Long today as an ancestor. He was, he remains, an intellectual giant, a warrior poet. You heard some of his favorite songs today. One that was not included was, I'm a -A M-A-N man. He was a race man. A blues man, a soul man. He was a human. I was privileged to be at his bedside in his final days. Though his body was weak, he chose to give final instructions to offer final blessing to his family, his colleagues, his students, his mentees. He poured himself out like a libation onto the ground of our imaginations as his final gift to us. Now, whereas we have been celebrating the divine thought of Charles Long, we cannot forget that Charles H. Long was a man, a passionate man, a man who was in love with life. And in one of those final conversations, at his bedside we asked what he would like and he said martini, gin, vermouth, and three olives. Now today as our closing it's not invocation but it is final blessing it is benediction it is sending us forth with power Libations are usually done with alcohol and recognizing even as Charles Long was making transition he was having a taste on his lips. So we must ask him for his tolerance and forgiveness right now because we're not going to pour libation with alcohol but we're going to use water. We've heard about the water this afternoon, water people. We've heard about water being life. We know that water is life, and so we will be pouring life onto life. And because we don't want to drown the plant, we will pour the remains into the other picture. (laughs) But we've gathered here today to celebrate. To celebrate life, to celebrate intellectual life, to celebrate as people who are often not considered intellectual. But we have gathered to commit ourselves to reimagine, As we pour this water onto this plant, as we water this plant, as we water the ground, as we water the ground of our imaginations, (coughs) reimagine. Reimagine the work that you've been called to do. Reimagine the life that we are living that can be new. As Charles Long declared that we must return to the water, step back into the water and come forth anew, he was not talking about baptism he was talking about how we must grapple with our past reimagine mm-hmm. and so i encourage you as we depart from this place to commit yourselves as we pour life to reimagine to reimagine to reimagine to I reimagine
5: AMEN AND AMEN.
8: Thank you so much for coming. Let's give everyone, the contributors, a hand. Thank you so much. Incredible afternoon.
0: Sponsors, Harvard Divinity School and the Moses Mesoamerican Archive and Research
5: Project at Harvard University.
17: Copyright 2023,
0: President and Fellows of Harvard College.